right, uh, good morning again. How many of you believe in Advent miracles? Advent miracles, Christmas miracles? Yes, last night one happened in uh, the Golden State Warriors. Uh, just sometimes, just saying, sometimes miracles happen. Uh, the Christmas tree at our home has been up for a week now. Yes, a week. Here it is up on the screen, I think. Yes, our little Christmas tree. And actually, it's been more than a week. It's uh, two Saturdays ago. Our uh, college kid was in town. We took the opportunity to go uh, over to Lucky, drive over to Lucky with a minivan, uh, purchase a little tree, throw it on the roof, head home, cut off the bottom half inch, put it up in the living room. There you go. That's my little confession. What about you? How do you prepare for Christmas? How do you prepare for the coming of Christmas? What do you do? What traditions have you embraced? Have you lived over the course of your life or recently? How do you prepare for Christmas? Maybe it means for you going into the garage or into storage and pulling out some things. Maybe it means for you uh, going to the back of your drawer, the bottom of your drawer, the back of your closet and pulling out an article of clothing. Uh, last night at the Kingdom Club musical watch party, somebody walked in with a really loud and borderline gaudy Christmas sweater. God bless that person. How do you get ready for Christmas? Open question, not rhetorical. Happy birthday, Jesus cake. Get the cake bacon. What else? Cookies. Lights on your house. Donate to charities. What else? Anything else? Come on, who's got a really ugly Christmas sweater? Oh, Sharon's got a really beautiful Christmas. There you go. You never know when this whole thing's going to go off the rails. Uh, so people celebrate Christmas and get ready for Christmas, those who celebrate Christmas, in a variety of different ways. And while the scriptures don't tell us how to prepare for Christmas, or give us any guidance about such, the scriptures do have something to say about how to prepare for the coming or the advent of the Lord of Christmas, which we'll see in a moment as we dig into the scriptures. First, pray with me. God, so good to be gathered here in your name and as people adopted and engrafted into your family, a family together in and through your son to worship you and to acknowledge you and to give you our praise, to pour out a bit of ourselves to you, to honor you. We ask that as we open your word and your words together that you would continue to give us hearts and minds and bodies that are inclined toward you, that are receptive, that are ready. Give us eyes that are good to see and ears that are good to hear, hearts that are fertile soil. I pray that as my words are true to your word, they would be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so as I said two weeks ago, we are uh, setting aside our long study of the gospel of Mark for seasonal reasons for a bit. Since Mark did not include in his gospel, which is the shortest of the four gospels, anything about what we typically associate with Jesus' birth. Mark doesn't include anything about Jesus' birth, nativity, right before that, right after that, in his gospel. 
The gospel writer John, though, begins his gospel with this sort of 30,000-foot view of Jesus' coming or Jesus' arrival or Jesus' advent. He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The true light that gives light to all people was coming into the world. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that's about as specific as John gets. Now, the gospel writer Matthew provides one version of Jesus' genealogy and a bit about Joseph and Mary, and then the visit of the Magi from the east occurs or is given only in Matthew's gospel, some months after Jesus' actual birth. It's the gospel of Luke, though, from which comes most of the narrative that we associate with Christmas, most of the people and the scenes and the songs, the details that we remember at Christmas. In fact, the first chapter of Luke's gospel is one of the longest chapters in all of the Bible. It is loaded. We're gonna bite off a small bit of that this morning, but even that small bit, the first part of it's fairly long, so get comfortable, listen closely. Reading from chapter one of Luke's gospel, beginning at verse one, this is God's word. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from uh, those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Luke was a closet Presbyterian. <laughs> an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, both from priestly lines. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both now very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to them what angels always say, calmly, do not be afraid, Zechariah. But there's more. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, as if Zechariah had been praying for that for years and years and years and years. And you were to call, his, call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Instead of being filled with spirits, he will be filled with the Spirit. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Very diplomatic. <laughs> Zechariah was a priest 
More than that, he'd been chosen by God through this casting of lots system to minister before the Lord at the temple and at the altar of incense in the holy place. More than that, Zechariah was an upright man, blameless before God. He had obeyed all of God's commands as well as any human being could. And yet he had questions. He had doubts. He wanted proof. He wanted evidence, maybe just like you and I might as well. Even in the face of an angel, show me something. Show me something. Now, verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this thing happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for, waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When Zechariah came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. They lived in the hills around Jerusalem. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And Elizabeth humbly accepts God's gracious response to Zechariah's probably years of prayers and praying, and certainly probably also Elizabeth's prayers as well. Not being able to have children at that time was understood, and by centuries of Jewish people as well, to be a sign of God's disfavor in a person's life. Despite the fact that Elizabeth, in her case, she had been an upright person. She had lived blamelessly before the Lord. She had kept all of his commands. Her heart was pure, righteous, obedient. But now that cultural or social shame, at least, that should have never been there in the first place, and we understand today, never probably just belonged to the woman, had been taken away and replaced with this miraculous gift. And just on this point, one could think of Elizabeth as the primary recipient of God's blessing in this narrative, as much giving birth when one is very old could be considered a blessing. But as we know, there's much more to the story than that. There's a whole lot more involved. Luke begins his gospel in the temple and with a priest. And with that priest ministering before the Lord at the altar of incense, you can't get any more Jewish than that to start a story. And then straight out of the Old Testament book of Daniel appears the archangel Gabriel. You can't get any more Israel than that. And Luke is showing that what is happening here is not detached from the past, from history, from the Jewish tradition, but rather is in sync with all of that history and is emerging from those centuries and centuries of Israel's faith. What's happening here is emerging from it and not something that's a fresh start from nowhere. 400 years ago, the members of the Plymouth Colony celebrated their survival after a hard winter, a hard first year, spring, summer, fall harvest. That was 400 years ago. It had been 400 years since God had raised up a prophet in the line of Elijah Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then Daniel. 400 years 
since the last of God's prophets from the Old Testament had spoken, ministered, appeared. That was a long time. Think how far back the Plymouth Colony is in our history. 400 years ago this year, they celebrated the first so-called Thanksgiving. And all that had happened, that has happened, between now and then, between then and now. And one gets some sort of idea of the perspective of all the context and all the silence and all the waiting and all the wondering if God would ever show up again. And then it was the turn of an old priest named Zechariah to minister before the Lord. There were 18,000 priests in Israel at this time. They were divided up into 24 different groups that may have come from the 24 different children or sons of Aaron. Each division, be, each division being responsible for or having the privilege of ministering in God's temple in the holy place twice a year, kind of how it worked out. But even then, only one fortunate priest got to go into the holy place each day, once in the morning and once in the evening to refill the incense burning there, which represented the prayers of the priests on behalf of Israel and the prayers of the people of Israel themselves going up before the Lord. And they had to keep the incense burning. And so this opportunity, this day was undoubtedly the high point in Zechariah's life one of 18,000 priests, and by the roll of the dice and the will of God through the casting of lots, he gets chosen, appointed to minister before the Lord. And boy, Zechariah could have never anticipated what would happen on his day at this time in the holy place. What does one do after having come face to face with Gabriel? I can imagine Zechariah stumbling out of the holy place, maybe crawling out of the holy place, maybe trembling out of the holy place, maybe backing his way out of the holy place, maybe having a glazed over look, maybe being filled with wonder. Regardless, the people must have said to him, what have you been doing? What has taken you so long? What's the deal, brother? We were getting worried. And Luke doesn't tell us how good Zechariah was at charades, but Zechariah must have tried his best to explain in hand motions what he'd seen, what had happened. But how does one act out an angel? What does that look like? Wings, halo, trumpet. Harder than that, how does one explain without words to one's well along in years wife that she's going to need to start making herself some maternity clothes? Oh, then how does one say with hand motions? You're going to have a baby. We're going to name him John. John. He will be a joy and a delight to us and also to others. Apparently, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with Holy Spirit. And certainly some of the people there that day must have thought or even said, Zechariah, did you inhale the incense? Did you inhale too much of the incense? You're not supposed to inhale the incense, Zechariah. Remember, we talked about this in training. You knew better than that, but there was more. Gabriel also said to the baby to whom Elizabeth would give birth, he will bring back many of the people 
of Israel to the Lord their God. Many had strayed. That was no surprise. It had been a long time since God had spoken. People drift. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. You remember that Elijah was probably Israel's greatest prophet of all times. Didn't really write much. Didn't have a book named after him, but Israel's greatest prophet. And he never died. He was swept up into the clouds, into the heavens. There was this chariot of fire, and then he's whisked up in a whirlwind. He never died. And it was thought that Elijah, who never died, would one day return or usher in this new and glorious day of the Lord or time of the Lord or kingdom or realm or reality or something. Elijah was coming back. The almost last verse, the penultimate verse in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi declares, like right at the very end of the whole Old Testament, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And Gabriel, angel, continues. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord your God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Ready for the Lord. I'm hardly ready for anything in my life. John's got this big high calling to make ready an entire nation for the Lord. Are you ready? Am I ready? Are we ready? What does ready look like? John would have a role in that. John had a role in readying the people. He plowed the fields of people's hearts. He primed the pump of people's consciences. He spoke very tangibly into people's lives to get things ready, to get people ready. And the way that would, was, would happen was through, among other things, repentance and reconciliation repentance and reconciliation. The word turn in verse 17 is the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn back, to return, to repent. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children then disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We get ready for Christmas in all sorts of ways. There's an essential component of getting ready for the Lord though, turning back to God, repenting of sin, being reconciled with one's parents or one's children or both. Turning from disobedience to obedience, turning from foolishness to wisdom, turning from unrighteousness to righteousness, saith the Lord. But what about Christmas trees and Cyber Monday and the Nutcracker and Santa Claus and gingerbread houses and fruitcake? There is definitely a place for all of those things. You can quote me on that. But not at the expense or to the exclusion of turning and repenting and returning and even being reconciled. And this Advent, which in the midst of the festivities calls us to the most important things, this is Advent, calling us to these most important things like relationships and righteousness and justice and generosity and love. Are you with me?
A friend was telling me this week about a conversation that he recently had with a chaplain who's worked in a variety of contexts, including a children's hospital and in hospice care. And this friend relayed to me how this chaplain friend told him that as hard as it is to deal with sickness and suffering and even sometimes death in a children's hospital and to have conversations with parents and families and patients about such things, it is often even harder to minister to people in hospice care who more often than one would imagine are having to deal with unreconciled relationships and everything that goes along with that, that have been fractured beyond repair, broken, people alienated from each other with bitterness for years, and how to deal with that on one's deathbed. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. That is being reconciled to one another. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Two, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And this is exactly the sort of thing, this and similar things to which the adult John, after he'd become, become known as the Baptist, prophesied and preached. Two chapters later in Luke's gospel, we read, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he came into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Yes, it is partly about roads. Make his path straight, every ravine will be lifted and every mountain and hill will be lowered. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he was saying, Luke continues in verse seven, to the crowds who were going on out to be baptized by him, produce fruits that are consistent with repentance and do not start saying to yourselves we have Abraham as our father for I say to you John the Baptist speaking that from those stones God is able to raise up children for Abraham and the crowds were questioning him John the Baptist saying then what are we to do in other words what specifically does this look like and John would answer them and say to them the one who has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And the one who has food is to do likewise. What are we doing during Advent? Now even tax collectors came to be baptized and they said to him, teacher, John the Baptist, what are we to do? And John said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Because the standard in their culture was to overcollect. And soldiers also were questioning John the Baptist, saying, what are we to do? We as well. And he said to them, Roman soldiers, do not extort money from anyone, nor harass anyone, and be content with your wages. What are we to do? If you have two pints of blood, get one. 
If you've got a closet full of jackets and coats, give a bunch. We know how to prepare for Christmas. Some of us are pretty good at that. With it, we might also be as devoted to preparing for the Lord who has come and who is coming, who will come again. And this is the waiting and watching of Advent and listening to Zechariah and Elizabeth's son who again calls us to repentance and righteousness and justice and integrity and generosity. Jesus would eventually begin his own public preaching ministry by announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and calling people to repent so that they might see it and enter it and know the king. Jesus shows up at the beginning of Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, preaching the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is here, repent, do life differently, change, turn around, go the other way, return, be reconciled. And so John's ministry first announced by the angel Gabriel at the altar of incense and that helped prepare people for Jesus was not bad news. Luke is super clear about that. Gabriel was super clear about that. Many people would be blessed. There would be great joy. Instead, it was good news because in it, including in repentance, a person is able to take an honest inventory of their heart and their life and acknowledge all that is lacking, all that is broken, all that needs healing, all that needs to be fixed, all that needs to be put back together, all that needs to be reconciled, all that needs to be restored. And that is what God did and does in Jesus and through his grace, the grace in his cross. Repentance isn't a happy word to many of us. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Welcome to Advent. Christmas is coming, prepare the way for the Lord, repent. And yet in repentance, there is grace. And in fact, repentance is grace. It is God's opportunity and his invitation to return however we are and as we are, but not as he intends us to stay. Acknowledgement, confession, repentance, and returning open the door for us to receive God's mercy and grace in Jesus apart from which a person is still stuck in their sin and the condemnation that accompanies such. But in repentance, in turning and asking, a person is able to see and receive, quote from Isaiah, the salvation of God. And along with that joy that God promised through Gabriel, not just to Elizabeth, an old woman who had longed for a child, and not just to Zechariah at the high point of his life but also to every, every, every person who with John the Baptist calls Jesus Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for John and for the ways you ordered things for your bringing out of your history with your people, another prophet to prepare the way, to till the soil, to get us ready to open people's eyes, to announce to the world. We come before you in front of this table 
acknowledging the things that aren't right in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills. Acknowledging the ways that we need to return to our children or to our parents or to our siblings or to our neighbors or to people with whom we have gotten sideways and distanced because of our grudges, because of our hurt, because of our pain, because of our sin, because of our disobedience, our waywardness. Heal us. And we confess to you, God, the ways that we have at times chosen unrighteousness rather than righteousness. We've chosen injustice or greed rather than generosity or justice. Forgive us, restore us, help us, heal us, unite us, make us one with one another. Join us to you through your spirit, through your grace, through your son. Amen.